Hello everyone and welcome again to Corico's very own property podcast. My name is Monty, you know the drill by now, and I am your host to guide you through and investigate the very latest in the world of mortgages, property and the general financial world. This week we're going to cover a range of issues which are, well, they're at the forefront of many mortgage brokers' minds, including the FCA's latest competition review, FCA fees and the rise of technology. We'll also delve into the post bag to answer some of the questions people have asked on Twitter and email, as well as looking at the current press. But perhaps most importantly, we're going to look at the workings of our very own trade body, the Association of Mortgage Intermediaries. And who better to lead us through this than the chief executive of Amy himself, Robert Sinclair. Hello, Robert. Hello, Monty. Good to be here. Welcome. We're honoured to have you back again. This is the... Uh, the second time we've had you, I believe. It is and, indeed. Uh, you were so popular that uh, everyone clamoured for your return. So here you go. Um, so I'm going to start off. There's, I guess there's been, I think there's been a bit of confusion from some quarters about, about what Amy actually is and what they do. Uh, and perhaps first off, you can en enlighten everyone as to well, what and who Amy is. Okay. Amy is a trade body, not a trade union, a trade body. So its job is to protect the commercial interests of its member firms. That's to say those who pay membership. And it's not the people who work in those firms, it's people mm -hmm. who are the principals of those firms. And our job is to protect their commercial interests by making sure that government, regulators and other market participants don't get in the way from allowing them to trade openly and competitively and profitably. That doesn't mean that I should get involved in any commercial discussions because I shouldn't, because that would be anti-competitive in its own right. Yeah. So we are there to try to make sure that participants understand the boundaries which they should operate in and also have good active discussions so that people are aware of the issues, but then firms make their own decisions about how they take their interests forward in the marketplace, making contracts with each other or making agreements with each other in order to move the market forward in the best interests of consumers. And do you feel that sometimes some people try and pull you into that, that commercial realm? I think some people would like me to be more involved. And clearly, um, when we get into areas around things like procuration fees or retention yeah. procuration fees or even some contracts, um, people would like me to be more involved um, because clearly Amy has a significant reach, influence, mm -hmm. um, and, therefore, and also a great deal of background knowledge. Therefore, it would probably be helpful if we got closer to some of these things. But it isn't allowed by the rules. The competition authorities would be very, very um, angry if a trade body tried yeah. to manipulate the market in any way, shape or form in that way. We're very careful, of course, as a, as a trade body, because we've got an elected board who give me guidance on the areas I can and cannot mm. be operating in. And we, we, we set out, when Amy became independent um, some six years ago, what our purpose was. And part of that was saying, I shouldn't get involved in commercial issues because networks have that view of how they want to operate the world, mortgage clubs have a view of how they want to operate that world, and firms themselves will want to make their own arrangements with other firms in order to do mm. what they want to do. And we shouldn't be limiting or saying that the market should be wholly open or partially closed or anything like that. This is about allowing firms to make their own decisions about how they operate. Mm. And a lot of what you do as a, as a trade body... Is uh, is done behind the scenes, really. So, so I guess I guess that can be a little frustrating in that you're doing all this hard work behind the scenes, and some of it doesn't really doesn't really get seen. Um, so, what uh, what 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 would you say that the biggest achievements of Amy to date? Um, I think being frustrated about being behind the scenes isn't something that sits in my um, blood now. 
I think if you'd asked me that question 10, 20 years ago, I would always be afraid that I was missing out on recognition. Yeah. Um, I think the one thing I learned um, about 10, 15 years ago, there's enough bouquets to go around for everybody. Um, that actually sometimes <laughs> the fact that you make a suggestion to somebody and they go and run with it is actually the greatest reward. Yeah. Um, I, even within Amy teams, sometimes people get frustrated because I appear to give away some golden nuggets. That is what a trade body should do. We should have bright ideas and give them to other people and let them go and run with them because we're small, perfectly formed, but small. Yeah. And therefore can't deliver all of this ourselves. Therefore giving some of the jewels away is what we should do as long as we do that fairly in, in a way that, that people can work with. Greatest achievements? Well, I think um, actually when Amy left AIFA and set up on its own, it was a very small trade body without significant voice. The achievement now is that you know, our, our chairman meets with the FCA chairman on an annual mm -hmm. basis to discuss issues. I have regular meetings with ex members at the FCA. I'm invited to lots of events that the FCA run and operate. That's an achievement in itself in that the Amy membership has a voice at top table. We're one of six really recognised trade bodies across the financial services marketplace that is listened to in a way that others are not because mm. we're deemed to act responsibly um, with common sense and not stand shouting and screaming but actually try to work out what the FC is actually trying to achieve and find a way to help them get there or might not be the way they've thought of in the first place. The other big achievement, of course, is the compensation scheme uh, recently where I think the it's hard to put a number on this, but getting... Um, protection out of the investment and protection class and moving it into GI and getting 25% um, provided contribution, I think that'll take somewhere between 20 and 25 million off the bill for mortgage wow. firms next year. So that won't happen until 1920, yeah. but that is a huge difference to the bottom line of member firms, which in relation to how much it costs around Amy, is a huge multiple. Yeah. And therefore, well, we should everybody should be rightly proud of how we achieved that because it wasn't just me on my own. There was a whole lot of other people worked yeah. to deliver that outcome. Mm. That's, um, well, that's very good. And, and so, uh, so what, what, are the, what are the big issues at the moment? I know there's, uh, well, there's uh, things around the, uh, the FCA's latest competition review. Is that, is that the big challenge for, for you as a trade body at the moment? Is that a big challenge for the industry as a whole? I think it's potentially a huge challenge for the industry. It's a big challenge for the trade body. It's a big challenge for other trade bodies because we have to decide whether the FCA has called this right. They've done a piece of work um, focusing on a set of data roughly a year after MMR against data from a year before mm. MMR. Decided that broadly 70% of customers come out with the right price but focused on price. Not on whether it was the right product or the right advice mm. but whether it was the right price. Am I entirely comfortable with that? No, I don't think I am, because I think price is only one determinant of what a good outcome is for customers. Mm -hmm. And I think broadly the FC would accept that argument, but we have a competition team who've looked purely at price as a determinant of output here. Um, that's then led them to think uh, they need three particular changes to the marketplace, one being trying to bolt together um, sourcing with more details about criteria together with... Um, more of the black box affordability that lenders run in order to perhaps allow customers to self-select or see what more, more clearly what products might yeah. be available to them. I think that's got huge risks attached to it, particularly if one of the second elements they're talking about, which is the change to the definition of advice or broadening what execution only is, would mean more customers could self-select. And I think that's fraught with danger because any good broker knows a customer walks in the door wanting something but don't know what they actually need. Yeah. And the discussions yeah. that good brokers have about how much you can actually borrow, what your income yeah. will, will deliver, what impacts in the way your costs are constructed, change the amount you can borrow with different lenders. Yeah. 
Your credit score and your income profile is not the only part of the equation here. And lots of life changes and life circumstances determine the right product for the customer, not just a simple equation of what's my credit score, what's my income, and therefore that's the best deal yeah. I can get. So I think it was a bit binary when it should have been more, com- yeah, more complicated. Yeah, I, f- I find that very strange for them to have looked just on the cheapest mortgage because we all know everyone, clients come into me, been coming in for the last 20-odd years, and they all come in wanting, well, I want the cheapest two-year fix or tracker rate. They rarely actually get that because once you sat down with them, you've looked at their circumstances, you look at the term that they need, maybe it's a repayment method, maybe they've got savings where they, they need an offset product. All of these soft facts are taken into account um, and, and, and they rarely actually come out with what they think they wanted. They come out with actually a suitable product that fits their circumstances, not just now, but also also in the future. So it's strange I've just honed in on this cheapest is best even if i decided that i wanted um a mini as a car i wouldn't necessarily buy the cheapest mini no absolutely i'd go and put the things on it that i want in that car to make it work best for me yeah yeah good analogy and and that's why that's why car manufacturers start with a base level product and then allow you to add to it they they don't actually start with the highest level product and take things out of it Is it because that's a silly way to produce something? And mortgages are the same. I think the other worry I have is that if it's purely about price, then we get to the market like an insurance product now, where it's commoditized. So you actually want a very base product that gets you the click, the acceptance at the lowest possible price. What happens then to most customers is they click through to the website of that provider and end up with add-ons or extra cost, which they didn't envisage originally, mm. but then. They don't opt back out to check whether they could have got that cheaper from another yeah. provider with those all those things they actually need as yeah. opposed to where they started from. And that's a worry I have about this solution. Yeah, absolutely. And and one part of that is also about building a uh, uh, a trip advisor for brokers, if you like, something that, that's actually out there that, that customers can, can go on to and, and compare different brokers, compare what they what services they offer whether they've had any complaints how do you see that that working in reality because for me that that seems like something pretty difficult to achieve it's difficult at many levels i mean even the fca recognized it's difficult if i go back to the fsa mmr rules they wanted to build brokers into their authorization system and that was one of the early wins they we all agreed should be done within mmr and it never Mm -hmm. got done because they recognized themselves it was going to be in the too difficult box um, and to try to build this will be complicated if we decide we want to go down that route. So building something that has got, and it has to start with the firm principle and the firm itself, Yeah. adding in then who all the brokers are, what lenders they have access to, how often they may have used them, then looking also at their which geographical areas they will cover, what product sets they will cover, and then get to quality issues. Mm. And you could superficially look at this as number of complaints or number of inquiries to the Ombudsman Service or the overturn rate to the Ombudsman Service, but only six firms in the last three years have ever appeared in the Ombudsman's. That's from a mortgage broker really perspective. See. So Ombudsman data is not going to be a very good differentiator no, any of no. this. A number of complaints on its own, if you can't measure the volume of business going through that firm, isn't a great determinant, but also the type of complaint is something you would want to know because is this a complaint about the advice or is it a complaint about the service standard of the lender? Mm. Because quite often the complaint comes in and it's actually because the lender screwed up but the broker sorts it out. You have to cancel the complaint but it's often cleared within three days. And is it a long-standing complex complaint or something has gone fundamentally wrong or is it actually a very simple technical query that's a complaint? If you've got lots of technical query complaints, it could just be that you're dealing with more complex customers. Mm. And is that 
something that should be counting against you. Yeah, no, We've absolutely. also got other ways of looking at it, which would be, you know, do you pick FIFO or Net Promoter Score or Google Scores? There's a number of firms going down this road already trying to differentiate themselves. Why would I or anybody want to pick one particular solution to that, to dictate yeah. that across the marketplace? I think mm. that's wrong that, to take away that choice yeah. from firms themselves. Yeah, we do that already with Trustpilot. That's something we're, we're engaging with massively and asking our customers what they think at every stage of the process. You know, uh, that, that's a good place to be because mm. it helps improve your standards and, and, and standards of all your advisors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've got... Well, I've got a couple of questions. Actually, I'm going to talk about technology before I move on to that. Um, because I guess in in the context of this competition review, maybe part of the drive towards increased execution only, do you think some of that might have been driven by the new technology companies coming out, the fact that actually lenders want more business to go down an execution-only route because they're developing this this technology uh, systems in the background that will enable them to do that? I, I think that it's interesting. I think that if I go back and look at the post-MMR scenario, I rarely ever heard a broker say to me, Robert, MMR, advice takes too long now. I, I can't no, think never. of a time I've ever heard anybody no. say that to me no. from the intermediary broker advice side. If I talk to lenders, however, most of them told me, this new advice process is taking an inordinate amount of time and it's ridiculous. Why? Because they built systems, i.e. IT systems, which were sequential and wouldn't allow their advisors to step outside of the system. Yeah. So technology in the way lenders build it never works because yeah. it's built by their compliance functions, not their sales functions. And that's where they've always got it wrong. Now, in a new world where the techie boys work more closely with the sales boys, we get to a different place. Yeah. But that means perhaps you can't do advice as cleverly. If you're working in a world of a lender where if you're caught in an advice trap, your risk function stops you from doing anything smart because it has to be sequential because their trust of the quality of their people becomes an issue. The recent intermediaries, brokers have always worked well as they're the better advisors. They're the more experienced people yeah. who genuinely are happy to step out there into the big world and be brave. And that's a challenge for us because I'm not sure we demonstrate that well enough in all the things we see and do. Mm. So that, that's a challenge. Technology, though, I think there's some exciting developments in technology. And if I talk across the piece to a whole sort of people who are playing the space, so at the front end, um, some firms that are trying to develop new technology around criteria, and whether that's mortgage gym, knowledge bank, criteria hub, people who've come into the marketplace in the last 12 months and mm -hmm. started to change that dynamic and pushing competition around the place there. The guys like Habito and Trussell who've come tried to come and break into the advice market have forced a whole range of firms to engage in technology they would not have done otherwise. So when those firms succeed or die, they have done the whole community a yeah. great service by coming in yeah. and challenging the status quo. So let's not be negative about mm. them. I think they've done a great, a great job for us. We've then got other parts of the landscape, whether it's your purple bricks or others, who are demonstrating to us that actually tech-led solutions can give customers good outcomes. Not always perfect, but they're changing the dynamic. So you then get to the part of, can you systemize advice? Well, actually, do you want to systemize advice is the question you should ask. Because actually, many, many customers want that whites of eyes, comfort of a voice, a human being in that yeah. space to say, you're doing the right thing here. And these are the other things you need to worry about. Mm. The other bit of the advice, which is, how do you take the application and shunt it automatically into the lender? Because that's where it's still painful for brokers and support stuff in the back office. That's the bit that still takes time and is painful yeah. and hurts. Very painful. <laughs> 
and and that's the bit we can automate and get better. Yeah. There's loads of stuff that we still to totally develop agree. to make it yeah, better. Absolutely. Without hitting that half hour in the middle bit. Yeah. That I think has got the most value, both in terms of the customer getting the right outcome, but the broker yeah. adding genuine value to the transaction. Yeah. And I think the guys who've been trying to break this model will find it quite difficult. The other part is that anyone who thinks they can systemize it and use artificial intelligence to this will find it enormously difficult. The reason for that is that artificial intelligence works if you're off a static landscape, a static set of foundations. The world of mortgages has got continually shifting foundations because affordability keeps shifting, criteria keeps shifting, products keep shifting. Now, for AI, needs a static foundation for it to work. It's very expensive AI for it to work off shifting foundations. So I predict AI models will take a long time to evolve to work mm. in this marketplace because of that. Therefore, let's focus on the bits we really can work with, which is front end and back end, mm. and leave the bit that brokers are really good at and enjoy just talking to customers as the job they do. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, the other thing that I think the new the new tech brokers who've, who've come in and have done well is, it, is they've, they've spent a lot of money, but they've spent a lot of money on actually shouting about what a broker does and, and, and making people more aware of what a mortgage broker is. And I've always got the impression that actually as an industry we do that, we, we don't particularly do that very well. Is that something that, that Amy should be concentrating on or is that actually the job of, of lenders? Is it brokers? I for me, I think it's a, it's got to be a collaborative. We've got to all get out there. I think the state of financial education generally in this country is pretty poor. Um, but what can we do to actually get the mortgage broking concept out there a bit more? Well, um, I continually agonise over this. And, and if you want to do a separate podcast on, on financial education, I'll be really happy to do that. Yeah, well, I think we probably will, place. yeah. Um, but brokers... I think we, we've got a couple of firms now who are advertising in tele, on television, which is good. Yeah. I think we've got others who might come to play in that space. Mm. And radio as well helps with all of this. There's different. There's low-cost ways of getting this out there. Yeah. And, and the challenger brokers have done great work in terms of getting challenges out there to customers to think about their mortgage and measure it and think about it in a way that, that, that is different from where we've been before. So that I, I view that as positive as well. Do I think that Amy should be running an advertising fund to promote the role of the broker? I'd love to, but is that what I'm here to do? I, that would be a role for Amy if we changed the structure and the approach. Yeah. And it would take a huge budget. So if, if any measure I've got that says, how do you promote any particular aspect of this? It would require a budget north of £2 million a year. <laughs> yeah. Now, I know how much it costs to run Amy at the moment. And therefore, am I going to multiply my budget tenfold to spend 90% of it on promoting brokers? I will spend all my time running advertising campaigns as opposed to doing the day job, mm. which I think the industry actually wants me to do. Now, should there be other entities that could perhaps be put together to do that? That's a debate to be had. Should it be me or somebody else? I think that's a challenge. But I actually think it's up to every firm in the country to be much yeah. better at doing what you do and others do. Mm. And we have a huge, if I think about God, 10, 15 years ago, um, the financial pages of most newspapers ran to half a page. We now have whole sections on personal money. Yeah. And therefore, our job should be to make sure that those conduits are properly informed and work effectively to understand the value of taking good advice. I think we, yeah. we do, through a range of Which, people, uh, yeah, we do a really good job around that, actually. And we're great at producing case yeah. studies into them, and we work mm. really hard at it. So I'm not critical in any way of what we have there. But it is the responsibility of more firms to approach that proactively 
and not be critical of the organisations and, and what we do. Because every time we say something negative, that gets multiplied by 10. Every time we say something positive, we're lucky if it hits the landscape. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, right. Well, I've got uh, so I've got some questions from uh, from from Twitter that uh, I've got some some names you might recognise. Um, so here's one from uh, actually this is quite interesting from from London Money. Is there is there a risk that in this current judgmental society that a broker can be proven guilty before innocent in respect of them being removed or barred from lender panels? Is that I know there was an issue with that some time ago. Is that still happening? I think there was a situation five years ago where um, certain lenders started to go down a route of cleansing. Um, I'll call it cleansing, so I think it's a good way to describe it. Um, we then reacted reasonably aggressively to that and got CML and IMLA in a room and we agreed some standards. I think the the process of getting them in a room to have the discussion moved the landscape probably a long way on its own because producing a final document was only, they could only sign up to it once they were actually all committed to the journey. Yeah. And having gotten signed up, I think we always have an issue in that five years down the line, not everyone will remember the document exists and why it's there and what it means. So that's part of a, a refresh that you, we probably have to do on a periodic basis in order to, to keep it fresh and, and in, in lenders' minds. However, if I think about the cases I've had across my desk in the last couple of years, and if I said that for every 10 that come in, I've probably managed to persuade a lender to reverse one of them. A couple of them, I think they probably should have, but didn't. But the other seven, from what they've shown me, and they show me stuff they shouldn't see me, and let yeah. me see sometimes, yeah. I think those people were bang to rights. Right, now, okay, that's interesting. That's, now, quite, that's a high proportion. It's now. a high proportion. Yeah. And the problem I have often is that when I get to the bottom of this, the broker themselves still has no idea of what they've done. Right. They don't actually understand why the lender is angry with them. Um, and sometimes that's happened. Sometimes it's fairly summary in terms of straight red cards. Mm. Most people now go through some form of warning system. Mm. If the broker isn't listening at that point or doesn't understand what it is they're meant to be doing or what their risks may be in terms of engaging with certain groups of customers often, yeah. then it becomes very hard to help. There are others who engage very quickly with the press during this process, and that kind of puts the lender in a corner. Mm. Because they are not going to do a U-turn once the press are involved very easily. They don't want to be seen to be not getting this right. Yeah. Um, and when you talked to me earlier about what are the good things we sometimes do behind the scenes, sometimes those things around helping people understand better or getting people back on panel yeah. and talking to, to, to firms about how they do that. I think if I went back even five years and, and talked about how good disclosure is to, to firms, I think most firms that have got a decent compliance or risk function now where anybody's approaching a problem a lender will normally have a quiet word first and talk to the firm yeah. and ask the firm to remove somebody quietly. They won't take the whole firm down as they were doing yeah. back then. Um, and rightly so. Because, yeah, rightly so. Um, but if we've got somebody who either doesn't understand the job or is actually being abused or used by criminal fraternity, as can often be the case, then we need to deal with it. We need to, we need to be really, really clear that it's not acceptable. Yeah. Um, and I know there are some people who feel they've been badly dealt with in all of this. Um, and I can think of a couple of people who I think have been badly dealt with in the process, but understand why they are where they are. Um, but often, when you actually sit back and look at it, you go, you know what, you should have known better. And some of these were high-profile names. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, what else have we got? High fees and second charges? Is that is that an issue that you get you get dragged into? I know there's a massive debate about the whole second charge markets, 
Um, and, uh, you know, is it right that second charge broker can opt out of giving first charge advice and vice versa? Um, does that put a customer at risk at all? Well, I, I, um, I think the interesting part of the FC rulebook is it does allow people to select which markets they operate in. And that's not just in uh, the mortgage markets, in a whole range of markets where a customer may come to you and in investment and pensions world, you can be selective about which parts of the landscape you operate in, in the same way we can be selective about the equity release market or not. And I think part of retirement interest only is that same debate about should we allow this to happen in isolation and not on a combined basis. When it comes to seconds, then we have a range of uh, second charge master brokers who are experts in this area. Um, we have some people who introduced to them and operate seconds are unsecured. Yeah. We have people in the first mortgage market who now see the benefit of taking a wider view. And I think it's up to individual advisors to make their own decision within their firms as to how they want to operate. Um, I kind of take the view that says that as long as there's a wide as possible a choice as possible, then firms can make their own decisions about the landscape they operate in. Mm. And as a trade body, I have to, or should I think, take the view that says having a wide landscape where people make choices is the best place to be. Because if I said everybody's got to be you know, all things about all things, I, I would be yeah. no, not I, very fair, yeah, I don't think. I totally so agree. I think that's where yeah. I am. Where I am on fees is that's individual firms' decisions. Because I've said before I shouldn't be commercial. Um, do I recognise high fees in the second charge market? I have seen some fees in that market that make me raise an eyebrow on occasions. But this relates to the fact that sometimes you see a significant fee, which is greater than the amount the customer is actually cash raising. Mm. That can't be right. Mm. But it's about what's proportionate in relation yeah. to this. I think one of the challenges the second charge market has is about aborted fees. So at the moment, they have always, and historically, they, because of the way the Consumer Credit Act worked, they couldn't keep fees if the deal didn't complete. So what you had was a history of all the valuation fees being lumped on the one in five cases that completed. So you almost had four valuations lumped in the costs of one mortgage, which isn't right. So I think they have to think about how they make that whole model fairer in a way that works best for everybody, yeah. because that's part of that dynamic. Mm. Then there is the issue of how many people do you have to pay in this transaction? Um, and, and that's a challenge for every firm to negotiate that with the people they do business with. So if a first charge broker wants to do seconds and wants to partner with somebody, they have the right to negotiate that as hard as they want in order to get to the right number. Mm. In the same way, it should be entirely transparent to the customer who's earning what out of this transaction. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm about a world of transparency and openness and understanding. And I think you, we should not mix the three up. Openness, transparency, understanding are three different things. And all of those should apply in the marketplace. And, um, well, thank you. They're, they're very candid answers. The... Um, I just want to ask you why you keep doing this, Robert. You, you've been doing this for a while now. You, you, you said you're not interested in it for getting the bouquets. And uh, although you have, you're very well known, obviously, you've done, done a great job for everyone in the industry. I think everyone recognises that. Um, why? What keeps you going? Um, it's an interesting one. Um, about nine months ago, I um, had a spell where I thought, I actually... Getting a bit fed up of doing all the evening events, and I want yeah. to step back and spend a bit more time at home and a bit calmer in my life. Uh, maybe drink less. Um, <laughs> How's that going for you? <laughs> not well after last weekend. Um, I, th I think, but but I woke up after about six to eight weeks of this on a Monday morning. I thought, I'm not sure I want to go to work today. And that was the first time in about ten really? years. Really, and then 
a couple of days later, I woke up in exactly the same space, and I, I actually stopped and thought, what is causing this? Because this doesn't feel right to me. And what happened was, because I'd stopped going out and seeing brokers and talking to them and closed out their issues mm. in the industry, I felt disengaged. And I realised I did go and have a chat with my half and say, you know, I said I was probably going to do less. Well, actually, I probably need to go back to it. Otherwise, I don't feel comfortable in the job. I think one of the interesting things is that, for me, is it's not the conversations I have on a structured basis. It's the casual conversations in evenings or over drinks or at meetings that I don't expect to have with yeah. a whole range of people. And I'm immensely lucky, immensely lucky, because I'm fortunate enough to be invited to lots of places and lots of things. That takes up a lot of my time, but actually it gives me the knowledge and understanding and the relationships that make the job exceptionally interesting. And I think you have choices in work. And, and could I go somewhere else and earn more money? Yes. Would I enjoy the job as much? No. Am I really lucky because I represent a bunch of people who get up every day trying to do the right thing by the customers they interface with? Yes. What could be more satisfying than working with a group of people who genuinely are trying to do the right thing by customers every day? And my job is just to help them a little bit along that journey. Yeah. And that's why I do it. That's why I keep doing it. Because it's really weird because um, I get to work and interact with a lot of very, very nice people. The number of horrible people I actually meet with are very, very few and far between. It's really strange. Just me. No, not you at all. <laughs> but, 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 but it's true. Because even, you know, every, every, every is never sure about lenders. And I actually think it's interesting where the intermediary part of lenders tend to have the same DNA. Yeah, no, I totally agree I know a lot that. of people in the other part of lenders, because I've worked in them, where they haven't quite got the same DNA. Um, and I think the, if we give up, or I give up, or Emily gives up, on trying to make sure we keep moving in the world of... Customers will do better if they've got a good discussion with a good advisor. Will be the day I should just give up and be mm. shot. Um, this is a passion for me about trying to make sure that that happens more and more and more. So when you when you put down the challenge of should we be do should we do advertising on behalf of the industry, my incentive reaction is yes, but I have to temper that with an that enthusiasm versus what's genuinely practical and yeah. budget budget wear, and that's mm. part of my. Lots of years' experience in this industry, and and, and and using that to try to have the right arguments and discussions with people. I think the other reason I do it is I'm so arrogant. I don't believe that anybody can do it better. <laughs> and on that bombshell, <laughs> well, I mean, if there, I mean, well, there's a good message in there, and it's great that you you believe as I passionately do, as as all our listeners passionately do, that what what they do is is they strive to do what's right for the consumer. Um, and that's what we've we've always done, and that's what I'm sure everyone will will continue to do. That's what's important. Um, and there's a great message there. If you haven't engaged with with Amy, then obviously I'm biased, but uh, but I would I would urge you to do so. Um, so we have to wrap it up there. Yeah, very good. Thank you very much. Thank you, Monty. It's been a pleasure. You're, you're, I was honoured to have you again <laughs> and hear, hear your dulcet Scottish tones. Um, so thank you, Robert from. Amy and uh, of course thank you all for listening we'll be back next month with uh, some more topical chat as ever any comments or requests for topics to cover in future episodes contact us on twitter at corico or through our website at corico.co.uk until next time thank you for listening mm -hmm.